0: It's good to be back with you. Um, It's encouraging to hear the good things that God is doing here at Graceway. I'm encouraged about your new pastor and these other Christians who are gonna be joining your congregation. So um, I hope that we can mutually be encouraging one another this morning. You can join me in, um, well, our our sermon is Job chapter 12. I'm actually gonna read a few verses in Job chapter 11 to kind of set us up for this. Um, The book of Job, uh, Are you getting tired of it? No, no, no. The book of Job, um, these chapters that we're in, is um, one of the toughest parts of the Bible in the Old Testament. Um, These are chapters where we are hearing these friends of Job and Job going back and forth. And at some point, we might wonder even, why, what's, are they getting anywhere? Um, I remember reading one commentary long ago saying... Maybe that's the point of this, or part of the point of this, for us to feel that they're not getting anywhere, that we hear their arguments, but they don't make progress, and we want to look at some of that today to see how Job is unaffected or unconvinced by some of the things that his friends are saying to him. Um, The book of Job, uh, in the Old Testament here, a book that is, I feel, even especially pertinent and applicable, relevant today. Uh, You can think of Christians in Ukraine wondering, why us? Why now? This doesn't make any sense. That's the book of Job, and it's a believer wrestling with just that. I don't understand why this is happening. All right. Please pray with me in opening. Father, I do thank you for our time together this morning in your word. I ask that you would be opening our eyes to Learn from it that you would be teaching us and speaking to our hearts that we might come away with this from this with a better understanding of you and ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, where we find ourselves um, in Job 12 is in the midst of this back and forth. We've now heard, and we didn't uh, read it in uh, one of these sermons, but chapter 11 is now the third of the friends, Zophar, speaking to Job. So the, the friends of Job, beginning with Eliphaz, are coming to him first, maybe gently, and saying, Job, we need to help you. We need to to show you the error of your ways. And Job, if you would just repent, if you would recognize that you have sinned, and that's why God is is punishing you, then we can all, things can get back to normal, and God will be happy with you again. As Job resists that, rightly so, because we know that Job has not done some big sin that would result in punishment. That's not what he's experiencing. As he resists their advice, they get a little bit more harsh in the way that they're speaking to him and a little more adamant as they are frustrated and impatient that Job just doesn't see the error of his ways. So when we had Bildad in chapter eight saying, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If your children were wicked sinners, well, God gave them what they deserved, but there's still hope for you, Job, because he hasn't killed you yet. And to to just hear how that would sound to someone who is suffering horribly, just has lost his 10 children in one day, and Bildad saying, well, they got what they deserved. In chapter 11, it's now this third friend, Zophar. And Let me just read you a few verses to just get the flavor of what he's saying. So in in chapter 11, um, verse 1, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right, should your babble silence men, and when you mock shall no one shame you, for you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh that God would speak and open his lips to you, and then he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So by the end of that, he's accusing Job and saying, God has actually been merciful to you. You actually deserve worse than this. This is what he's hearing from his friends. His friends say things that are true, and that's going to be part of our discussion today. Um, You know, the first part of verse 6, he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, he is manifold in understanding. God knows. God is all wise. God is all powerful. The friends know that, as we will see in chapter 12. Job knows that and affirms that. But they're trying to teach him, but they don't understand. So now we turn to chapter 12, and he re- responds to Zophar and really to all the three friends together because each of them has had a chance to speak now, and we'll hear his words to them um, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. I hope you hear the sarcasm in Job's words here. You guys are so wise that when you die, there won't be any wisdom left. You have all of it, right? But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? And that's going to be a prominent theme. Of course I know some of the things that you're saying. They're true what you're saying about God. But now verse um, verse four, I am a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. And that's how he feels. He's been made a mockery of by his friends that um, society as a whole has put him in the category of a wicked sinner. They don't know exactly what he's done, but they're sure of it, Um, and they mock at him because look at how he has been judged by God. Verse five, in the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those who feet slip. Notice what he says in verse six. The tents of robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Those who provoke God are secure. Now, I just want to point this out really quickly, and um, this is something that Job will develop more later in the book. Sometimes, Job observes, the wicked do prosper. So in this case, people who are provoking God are secure. They're not suffering. Um, Some people think maybe he's implying that it's his friends. Uh, I don't know if 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 we know that for sure. But he's making this observation that some who are provoking God, who are doing the wrong thing, are perfectly fine. He'll develop that later, as I said. But here's something that the friends and he don't really take full account of. If sometimes the wicked are prospering and they should be able to observe that, what does that do for their theology? Because their theology, the friends and to a, a a real extent, Job himself agrees with this theology that God's dealing with people is if you are righteous, you'll be blessed, if you're wicked, you will be um, punished, and if you're somewhere in between, you'll get a mixed bag, right? But sometimes the wicked are prospering, the wicked aren't being punished. And that maybe if the friends were willing, maybe they'd take that step back and say, wait a minute. Maybe this certain theology that we, theology that we have about God's, um, God's justice and how he deals it out, maybe we're a little mistaken, but they won't do that. And that's not developed at length here. Job will talk about it more later. Verse 7, but ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of heaven and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare it to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? What he's going to do from here through the rest of this chapter is describe the glory of God and how powerful he is and how wise he is and how sovereign he is over his creation. And he starts out by saying, Job does, ask the beasts, even the animals, all of God's creation recognizes this about God. We all know this. We do have this common ground um, between Job and his friends that everyone knows these things. Um, Creation, the beasts, the birds, the bushes, the sea, they declare God's existence. And I think we can at least recognize the truth of that, right? We can look at God's creation and say everything about it testifies to the reality and existence of a great and awesome creator God. Verse 10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. So God is sovereign over all life. Wisdom is with the aged and in This book, the three friends of Job and Job himself are considered the the old and wise in their society. That's why they are the ones having this great wisdom debate over Job's circumstances. If you remember, the fourth friend, Elihu, waits until the others have spoken because he's young and he is brash and and will have a lot to say. But wisdom is with the aged. There is wisdom, and we'll talk about that. Where does it begin? Verse 13, with God our wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And some have um, described verses 13 to 25 as a hymn about God, glorifying him and his power and his sovereignty. And this is something that Job is affirming. His friends are trying to tell him God is in charge, God is sovereign, God is just, God is all-powerful, and Job says... I know, I know, I know, I know. And where we'll get to today is him then saying, but that doesn't explain my situation and that doesn't help me right now. We can agree on this. So I want to read through this hymn, giving praise to God, and then see how Job responds to it just at the beginning of chapter 13 and see the implications for us and how we think about God and then even apply our knowledge of God. So let me continue reading. So um, I'll I'll restart it in verse 13. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job knows that. All wisdom belongs to God. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. So God is in control. God is in charge. God tears down and he builds up. He said this at the beginning, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. We sung about that this morning, right? God is sovereign and he's affirming that. You can see it in nature. He is sovereign over the rain. When the rain comes and we can grow our crops, we see that when there's famine, we know that God is in charge of that, he's saying in his context. Verse 16. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The, de- the deceived and the deceiver are his. So everyone, all humans, are in his hands. He is sovereign. He leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. As you read through this section, you can see, and I'll continue, a series of different human leaders who on their own have power and wisdom and control, and yet God can humble any of those and overturn them. He is sovereign over humanity. He leads priests away stripped, overthrows the mighty, 20. He deprives of speech those who are trusted. And takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. As we're reading through this section, Job is affirming all these things. His friends are trying to remind him, don't you know God is in control? Don't you know God is sovereign? Don't you know God is just? And he is saying, yes, yes, yes. He reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a parallel book in the Old Testament that wrestles with many of the same issues. So the preacher, who is the main speaker in the book of Ecclesiastes, wrestles with all aspects of life and tries to make sense of them, and again and again he says, it doesn't make sense. I can't understand how all of this works. Sometimes, readers of the book of Ecclesiastes have said, we know your problem, you have forgotten about God. I'm doing this very quickly, but this is a big deal in Ecclesiastes interpretation, I'm just giving you a thought on it. Sometimes readers say, preacher, in Ecclesiastes, your problem is you have forgotten about God. You're just looking at earth, at life under the sun. If you look at the book carefully, I would argue differently, however. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is affirmed as a wise man at the end of the book. He looks at things under the sun because guess where we live? Under the sun. And he does not forget about God. The reason the preacher in Ecclesiastes has such a great struggle is because he remembers God. He knows that God exists. He knows that God is sovereign. See, it would be really easy for Job or the preacher in Ecclesiastes to say, I found the answer, God doesn't exist. And then everything would make sense again for them because life is miserable and they're suffering and nothing makes sense. That would be the consequence of there being no God. And so they would be fine. They would come to some resolution. But both the preacher and Ecclesiastes and Job in this book are wrestling with things that I think we we need to take note of. They're wrestling with the fact that God does exist, and they never question that, and they never forget about that, and yet life so often turns out in ways that we don't think it should, right? It turns out in the ways that it shouldn't. So these books are especially um, relevant to us as Christians. As believers, when we struggle and say, I know, I believe in God, and yet things don't make sense in my life. These are books that have wrestled with that, that believers have learned from for thousands of years, and that's why we're here in these books, because we will will confront and face these same things in our lives. So let me continue. So God, through verse 21, is in charge of all the, um, you know, anyone, any humans who are in power, God is actually in control. Verse 22, he uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He is sovereign over the nations here. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. So God is sovereign. God is in control. Job affirms that along with his friends. See now his reaction to what he has just said and he fully agrees with, beginning in chapter 13, 1. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you." And that's what, how he started back in chapter 12. You, you, my friends, think that you know more or have a better understanding and you're here to teach me? You're telling me things I already know. You don't actually have answers for me. You aren't actually telling me anything new that's helping me in my situation. I already know this. Back in verse 7 of 12, even the beast, everyone knows this. This is common knowledge. You're not teaching me something. Verse 3 then, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, again to the friends, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. I mean, the harsh words of Job respond to his friends, worthless physicians, you have come trying to heal me and help me, and you are no good because of the what you are saying to me and what you are assuming about me. Oh, that you would keep silent and that and it would be your wisdom, right? If you guys would just shut up, you would sound a lot wiser. The Proverbs tell us something about that, right? The fool um, sounds wise when he doesn't speak. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? And if you read ahead to the end of the book, at some point, God will come in chapter 42 and judge the friends and say, you have not spoken what is right as my servant Job has. They think they're speaking for God, but he rebukes them and says they have spoken falsely about him. He, verse 10, will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? And finally, in verse 12, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. What I wanna do here is then explore a little bit about what the friends are saying and the mistakes they're making and how we may make the same mistakes using the Bible. Because he says, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. They have sayings that they think are wise, but they're really, in the end, the way they are applying them, faulty and false and worthless. How does this work? See, our friends, Job's three friends here in the book believe the theology sometimes called retribution theology or the theology of God's justice that I started I talked about before right if you're if you're righteous you'll be blessed if you're wicked you will be punished where do they get that idea well they get that idea from the common teachings of wisdom such as found in the book of proverbs so I'm not claiming that these friends have the book of Proverbs, but the, the wisdom found in Proverbs is ancient wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation, and they are aware of this type of wisdom. The wisdom that says, if you do the right thing, life will go well for you. If you do the wrong thing, if you make the, the, the wicked choices, the sinful choices, the foolish choices, it will go badly for you. So it is their I I was just grading tests uh, midterms this past week and uh, in wisdom literature class where we're wrestling with all these issues and I had a student say, so the book of Job refutes the book of Proverbs. No, not quite, all right? The book of Job stands alongside the book of Proverbs in the Bible as wisdom. But what the book of Job does is correct a common misunderstanding of proverbs and how they can be used. So it clarifies proverbs. It corrects us when we are prone to misuse it. So let me give you an example of how sometimes Christians have misused proverbs. So I'm going to pick a topic here, um, the topic of raising children. All right. So let me read a few verses from proverbs that talk about raising children. Proverbs 13:24. 24. Um, maybe a One that you've heard. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So the parent's responsibility to discipline their children. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up the child. Bring your child up in the faith and they will follow that faith to the end of their days. Proverbs 29, 17. And these are just a few, there are more of them. 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. So this general teaching of Proverbs is if you raise your child right, if you train them in the ways of the Lord, they will follow that path. I remember um, teaching on this subject with a, uh, in, in a Bible study in another church that had a, a, a large population in this Bible study of grandparents, maybe even some great grandparents. They had the collective experience and wisdom of seeing generations, their children, their grandchildren grow up, bringing them to church. And this, um, this topic really resonated with them and struck a chord and they said, yeah, but we've seen how this actually happens it doesn't always work out that way. What does that mean? That these proverbs have failed? That God's word has failed? No, it hasn't, but we need to understand what proverbs are. So let me give you an example of a modern secular proverb, one not found in the Bible. This is one of my favorites um, to, to illustrate. The early bird gets the worm. So first of all, I, I remember my son when he was young telling him this, and he would say, What do I want with a worm? He was the, the the biblical and interpretive literalist there. The early bird gets the worm. Alright, so what does that mean? Well, in just its literal sense, if a bird gets out of it, you know, gets out early and is looking for the worms, it wants a worm to eat, is gonna find one in the morning. Alright. But does that always happen? What if that day there was an earlier bird? that got that worm. What if the worm is a smart one and is hiding under a leaf and it doesn't see him? Maybe the worm, maybe there just is no worm that morning. Does that proverb fail, that secular proverb? No, because it's not intended to be a promise to that bird or a prophecy about that bird getting the worm. Instead, it's advice. It's general advice to live, that if you're a bird, And you want a worm? Well, get out there early and get one, right? That gives you your best chance to succeed. And it doesn't come with a guarantee. And although we're now reading biblical proverbs that are inspired, we need to recognize that they are still proverbs, and to read them as proverbs. They are not promises. They are not prophecies. Wisdom literature does not pretend to know the future of exactly what happens. Wisdom is based on the past and the experiences that we have seen collectively that is good and inspired, but it is advice and the way things normally work out. So if, you know, if, if we then apply the early bird gets the worm to us, if you want to accomplish something and be successful, we've well, got to get out there and try. Getting up early and doing that, does that guarantee you will succeed in that particular thing you're trying to do? No, it doesn't guarantee, but it sets you up for success. And that's what the Proverbs are doing. So when parents are taking these Proverbs on parenting and and being um, careful to train and teach and discipline and bring their children up in the ways of the Lord, that is setting them on the path to following the Lord. But we as parents cannot make our children follow the Lord. My first experience in parenting was my my first child, right? Daniel. Whenever he was born, Jody and I had read all the books and we said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to follow this book and this wisdom guidance on how to get your child to, um, to get on a schedule and sleep through the night, all right? And we were amazing parents. We followed the guidelines. Daniel, our little baby, did exactly what he was supposed to do, and within a couple of months, he was sleeping through the night. We were geniuses. Then our second child was born. That would be Anna. And we did all the same things, and we did everything that the book said, and we put her on. She would have nothing, none of it. She, every night for her first year, she'd get up right around 3 a.m. She wanted to you know, to see us, get fed, whatever. She refused to follow our schedule, as diligent as we were. So, she had never slept longer than three hours until her first birthday, and then she decided, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and sleep all th- sleep 11 hours through the night. She just did it her way. What that made me realize is, as a parent, I can try, I can teach, I can train, but there is no guarantee that the child is going to do what I want, right? That's the reality that we have as parents, right? The proverbs set us on a course to success, but it can't promise, it can't guarantee. Because even within the proverbs, let me just uh, let me find it here. Even within the proverbs, we can read this in Proverbs fifteen five. Proverbs fifteen five says, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So even within the Proverbs, they recognize that a fool can despise his father's instruction. So it's not as simple as we might see at first glance that, oh, you just train your children and they follow the Lord. No, they have choices in life. There's no guarantees. The way that we use that proverb, those Proverbs is for guidance, for setting our children up for success, but we can't make them follow the right path, they can reject that, and that's the reality. Does that give us, uh, you know, does that let us off the hook if we don't do our jobs? Absolutely not, but we don't have that guarantee. The other passage I want to look at is very quickly. um, In the New Testament, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8. This may be a familiar passage, and it's it's why I want to talk about it, even if I just do so briefly. Romans 8, 28 is a verse that we probably have heard and and know well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So you say to Job, Job, don't you know, Don't worry about it, God works all things together for good. Partly, we have to understand what God means by good. What is good for God is maybe a different, um, maybe he gives us a a different definition than we would say for ourselves. Because if his friends are saying to him, oh, you know, don't worry, just, it'll all work together for good, are those the words that maybe Job needs to hear in that situation? Those can, be very, those can be said in a very flippant and dismissive way by Christians. Don't you, my fellow brother or sister in Christ, who is suffering horribly and, and lamenting and in grief, well, don't you know that God works all things together for good? And they could respond to us, yes, of course I know that. But that doesn't, that doesn't bring me out of the situation, the feelings that I'm in right now. Notice the next verse that I think is extremely important in understanding verse 28. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So how do we understand the good? What is good in God's eyes? Well, I think the next verse explains it. The good for us is that we be conformed into the image of his son. Sometimes we take that God works all things for good in terms of circumstances. And we have this idea because that's how we think of good. If you're going through a bad circumstance, oh, don't worry. Very soon, God is going to turn all that to good and you're going to have lots of good circumstances. I do not think that's what this is teaching here. Instead, you're going through a really bad time. You're going through tremendous suffering and grief. And you know what? God will use that to conform you into the image of his son. That is the good that he has intended for you. And your circumstances may not change. There is no promise that somehow our circumstances are going to get better. But we can read this verse in that way that ah, God's gonna make it better. And see, whenever we try to counsel and encourage someone and we, we just don't recognize the depth of their sorrow and how they are hurting, and we can say, well, don't you know that God loves you? Yeah, of course I do. Don't you know that God exists and he's sovereign? Yeah, that's why this doesn't make any sense, just like Job, just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. We have to recognize that our words We need to choose them carefully, we need to give the advice that that people will really take in and that they would really benefit from. See, Job's friends, they think they're giving him the words that he needs, but they're not. He knows all this stuff and that doesn't help him. Whenever sometimes we can be, again, a little flippant or dismissive to someone, our fellow Christians in the, in the, the pain and suffering where they are and say, Well, you know, just have faith. You can have faith in God. Yeah, of course I know that. How do you think I'm even alive? It's because I have faith. God's going to turn all his good. Yeah, but what does that good look like? Yeah, he's working in me, but that doesn't change the situation. And sometimes we we want to fix them. When we see our fellow Christians at that place of um, deep mourning and sorrow, we want to fix them. Well, can't you get over that? Maybe that's going to be a very long process for them. Maybe that's going to be, maybe it'll get worse before it gets better. We don't know. But when we apply and and we we give them God's word, we need to be careful about how we're saying it and we know what we're doing. Because the things that Job's friends are saying to him are true to the most, most part, right? They're saying lots of true things about God, but he knows those things and he's in this place of extreme misery nonetheless. I'll read one final proverb. Well, there are two of them that I have together here in closing. Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. So the apt answer, just the right word, with Proverbs 25, 11. Twenty-five eleven says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold setting of silver. What does that person need to hear from us? What is just the right word at just the right time that will encourage them, um, uh, help them, enable them, even admonish them if necessary? What is just that right word? That is what Proverbs uh, says is beautiful and valuable, knowing the right thing at the right time. So the book of Job to me is a challenge. How am I advising others? How am I teaching? even just talking to people around me and what they're going through, and not jump to conclusions about them or jump to the wrong conclusions about their relationship with God and His Word. Maybe they already know these things better than I do. Maybe they're still suffering and still in pain and questioning why, God, why, and realize Job never gets the answer to that question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you as we wrestle with this book of Job that you would be teaching us, that you would be opening our hearts, opening our eyes and our ears, that we might better know you and your ways, that we might be better, just better servants of you in this life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life, Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through His Son, Jesus Christ.